The Father of the just rejoiceth greatly. Let thy father and thy mother be joyful, and let her rejoice that bore thee. Words from the introit of last Sunday's Holy Mass in the Extraordinary Form, which was the Feast of the Holy Family. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along here. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, the confusion stops here. Now, the Feast of the Holy Family, which we celebrated last Sunday in the extraordinary form of the Mass, is especially meaningful in this year of St. Joseph, and in light of the recently approved um, for private devotion messages of Our Lady of America, a main element of which is the imitation of the virtues of the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Now, we're going to talk about those virtues today as uh, we look at the readings for last Sunday's Mass in the extraordinary form. And later on in the program, we're going to focus especially on the virtue of piety and its importance today and how impiety is such a destructive force in the world. But first, from the readings of uh, last Sunday's uh, gospel, or, or Mass, rather, in the extraordinary form, beginning with the epistle from St. Paul to the Colossians. Brethren, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, a heart of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against any other, even as the Lord has forgiven you, so also do you forgive. But above all these things have charity, which is the bond of perfection. And may the peace of Christ reign in your hearts unto that peace, uh, rather unto that peace indeed you were called in one body. Show yourselves thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you abundantly. In all wisdom, teach and admonish one another by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing in your hearts to God by his grace. Whatever you do in word or in work, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when St. Paul calls Christians holy and chosen and beloved, He's talking about our special relationship with Christ that entitles us to receive from the fathers all the graces and all the blessings that we need to follow the gospel. And those same words were actually used in Deuteronomy chapter 7 regarding the children of Israel. So St. Paul is making the point that Gentile believers are now the new covenant family of God and his uh, admonitions that follow are a blueprint for a happy home. Forgiveness, peace, gratitude, wisdom, prayer, and above all, the crowning virtue of the Catholic home, charity, love. Surely this was exemplified by the Holy Family of Nazareth. And the Feast of the Holy Family is a celebration of the happy home of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and a call to imitate their virtues, which, as I mentioned, is one of the three main points of the messages of Our Lady of America to Sister Mary Ephraim to imitate the virtues of the Holy Family. And what are those virtues? Well, I would submit that the best list of virtues of the Holy Family are those associated with the joyful mysteries of the Rosary. You know, these these virtues, rather, are commended in the first five mysteries of the Rosary because they are preeminently modeled by Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, not only as individuals, 
but precisely as a family. And those virtues are humility, love of neighbor, poverty of spirit, obedience, and piety. Now, we're going to talk about piety and obedience in some detail uh, after we look at the gospel for this Feast of the Holy Family. But I'd like to first focus on poverty of spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it means to accept all of the ups and downs of your life as coming from the hand of a loving Father. I think this is also uh, what you would call abandonment to divine providence. It's certainly exemplified in the words of our Savior to his Heavenly Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Not my will, but thine be done. I'm sure I don't have to convince you that there are times of trial and dark days in life. I mean, some of us are going through uh, the worst many of us have ever known, uh, even as I speak. And even the best of us may at times be tempted, uh, tempted to mistrust the providence of God or even to lose hope altogether. But if we are seeking first the kingdom of God, which is like we talked about last week, we will realize that nothing happens that God does not will or allow. In other words, he will, or we will understand like Job, that it's God who gives and God who takes away, and that he gives and takes away for the sake of our salvation, for the sake of our souls. As Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we are much of much more value in God's eyes than the birds of the air. So we should put our trust in him. And not allow our physical needs or our emotions or our trials and tribulations of life to turn us away from him or to make us bitter. Because it's precisely in the darkest hour that we should trust the most. And then in the time of disappointment that we should be the most patient. And the hour of trial when we should be most at peace. And why? Because whatever may happen tomorrow, the same eternal father who cares for you today will care for you tomorrow and every day. Whatever evil befalls, he will either shield you from it or he'll give you the strength to bear it. Pardon me. Still got that nagging cough. You know, um, so the, the point is we should put aside all of our anxiety and our imaginations. My wife tells the kids, don't play what if. Just keep in mind this simple fact, that you're alive today and you are going through all of these, uh, the events of these troubled times, precisely because from all eternity, God Almighty determined that this historical situation is the very best one for you to achieve your eternal salvation. And Scripture tells us, no matter how difficult our trials, when the hour of our deliverance shall come, we will count as nothing, everything through which we've passed. Because in the words of St. Paul, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come that shall be revealed in us. That's Romans 8.18. This is the secret of poverty of spirit. The crown of thorns today, the crown of glory hereafter. And that brings us to the gospel for that Feast of the Holy Family in the extraordinary form. It's also the fifth joyful mystery The finding of Jesus in the temple from Luke chapter 2, verses 42 through 52. When Jesus was 12 years old, they were going up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast, and having fulfilled the days, 
When they returned, the child Jesus remained in Jerusalem, and his parents knew it not. And thinking that he was in the company, they came a day's journey and sought him amongst their kinsfolks and acquaintance. And not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his wisdom and his answers. And seeing him, they wondered. And his mother said to him, Son, why hast thou done so to us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said to them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the word that he spoke unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. And his mother kept all these words in her heart. And Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and grace with God and men. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So Mary and Joseph found Jesus in a hall of the outer court of the temple, where the doctors or, you know, the, the teachers of the law met to expound on the law and to answer questions and to field objections. And to these assemblies there came uh, serious inquirers and also just the merely curious, all of whom sat at the feet of the doctors to listen to them. But when they found Jesus, he was not uh, sitting amongst the inquirers. He was there sitting among the doctors, you know, these, these men who were held in such high esteem by the people. And he listened to them, and he put questions to them and answered their questions so as to lead them to a knowledge of the truth. You know, fathers of the church tell us that uh, most likely that discourse was about the messianic prophecies. And Scripture says the doctors of the law were astonished at his questions and his answers, obviously because such questions and answers were unheard of coming from a, a boy of 12 years old. Now, Mary says... Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now, in his early life, Jesus passed among the people for the son of Joseph, right, the carpenter, although he was the son of God. And uh, and St. Joseph was really then, Joseph was really his foster father. But, you know, if you look at the genealogy of our Lord in Matthew's gospel, and Joseph there is simply referred to as the husband of Mary. However, Joseph has an important role in that genealogy because he was our Lord's father according to the law as husband of Mary. And, and so Mary is right to call him by the title father. Now, St. Luke says uh, that Mary and Joseph wondered at seeing Jesus seated amongst the doctors. And when Jesus says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Scripture says they understood not the word that he spoke unto them. Now, obviously, they understood the literal meaning of what he said, but not its deeper sense. They knew Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the the Redeemer from sin, the light to the Gentiles, but they didn't understand in what way he would accomplish the great work of redemption or how his remaining behind in the temple uh, would be connected with it. Okay, so more on this when we come back. I hear the the music coming up. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic. You're on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're talking about... The Virtues of the Holy Family. And we'll be right back with lots more on that and uh, also on especially the virtue of piety when we come back right after these messages. Stay with us.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Sirach 11.24 says, Do not say, I am self-sufficient. What harm can come to me now? According to St. Catherine of Siena, presumption is like vermin burrowing at the root of the tree of our soul. If we do not uproot it with great care and humility, it will eventually destroy the soul. May God keep us from all presumption of mind and heart and realize that we depend on Him for everything. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, Your host, Matthew Arnold here. And we've been talking about um, the finding in the temple from Luke chapter 2 and the uh, moving on to the virtues of the Holy Family. Just a, a couple more points that the scripture says that uh, after these events that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. She pondered over them and compared them with what she'd heard from the angel and from the, the wise men and from Simeon. And thus she entered more and more deeply into the mystery of redemption throughout the life of our Lord. And finally, it says that Jesus advanced or increased in wisdom, age, and grace with God and men. Now, shortly before this, in Luke 2, uh, verse 40, it says the child was full of wisdom. And yet now, here in Luke 2, 52, it says he advanced in wisdom and grace and age. So then, how is this, you know, how how are we supposed to understand him increasing in wisdom? Well, because in a literal sense, you know, Jesus is a divine person. He's God the Son, and he can neither increase or decrease in wisdom and grace because from the first moment of the Incarnation, he was, he was full of grace and truth. He says in John 1.14, But he appeared to the eyes of men to increase in wisdom and grace as he advanced in age, 
by revealing with increasing years more and more of the hidden fullness of wisdom and grace that were within him. Jesus increased in favor with men because the more they came in contact with him, the more they loved and appreciated him. And he grew in favor with God because the more Jesus did for the glory of God, the more his eternal father was pleased with him. Okay, so what are we Christians supposed to learn from all of this? Well, I would mention, you know, first and foremost, that we should never miss an opportunity to go to church, particularly to going to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. And further, that we should assist at Holy Mass or any other, you know, public service with genuine uh, active participation. Now, I know that that, that term is overused, but, but what it really means is to have both an inward and an outward devotion, right? Those of us who are parents should learn from Joseph and Mary to take our kids to church and to take personal responsibility to teach them their prayers and to teach them uh, their religion, to be responsible for their formation. The lesson the boy Jesus teaches parents is that we should attend religious instructions ourselves, listen to the Father's homily at the Mass, study catechism, learn what's necessary for our own salvation, right? You can't give what you don't have. That's why St. John Paul II said, catechesis is therefore for adults of every age, including the elderly, no less than for children, adolescents, and the young. Right? Formation is an ongoing process. Now, <clears throat> when Mary expresses her and St. Joseph's distress over not being able to find Jesus, he answers her question with a question. You know, why did you need to search for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house or about my father's business? Now, Scripture doesn't record Our Lady's response, but the next verse says, He returned with them to Nazareth and was subject to them. So, we learn from this that children should obey their parents. You know, when the God-man subjected himself uh, to the obedience of his poor mother and his foster father, who was a simple carpenter, what can we think of, of children who are ashamed of their parents? Or adult children who, who refuse to help their parents in their old age or to relieve their, their poverty or their distress. You know, this is the sin of impiety. We're going to talk more about that later. Now, what else do we learn from this gospel? Now, that we see the two natures in Christ. Our Lord is at once true God and true man. And this story reveals both of his natures to us. Because as man, Jesus was the child of Mary. As man, he increased in age and with time developed into boyhood, youth, and manhood. Each of the episodes prior to the finding of the temple testify to Jesus being God, the true God. Even though in the manger and at the visit of the Magi and the flight into Egypt, you know, the presentation, we only see, uh, we've only seen the incarnate Son of God in a state of humility and poverty and, and, you know, even persecution. But we have not heard a single word proceed from his lips. It is in this gospel that we hear our Lord Jesus speak for the first time. And his words are words of wisdom that bear testimony to his divine nature. Now, as soon as Jesus completed his 12th year, he went to Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah. As a Jewish male, he was now an adult in spiritual matters. And so for a time, he withdrew himself from the protection of his parents and came forward According to the will of his heavenly father, uh, he came forward as a teacher of the law, and he, and he showed his divine wisdom 
and he was then, you know, he's preparing the way for his public ministry as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And he himself refers directly to his divine nature by the words, did you not know I must be about my father's business? Not talking about St. Joseph, he's talking about his heavenly father. He calls God his father and thus proclaims himself to be the son of God. This was our Lord's first declaration of his divinity. Now, we talked about some of these virtues. We talked about poverty of spirit. Another one is obedience. Until Jesus was 30 years old, he practiced the most complete obedience towards his mother and his foster father. You know, we have this image of him helping his mother in her household work and serving Joseph as an apprentice in the carpenter's trade. We know that after, I mean, uh, Scripture doesn't record the death of St. Joseph, but we do see uh, at the beginning of our Lord's ministry that he is referred to as the son of the carpenter, but also as the carpenter, right? Because he had uh, presumably stepped into his father's shoes. And the thing to think about is this. The thing to think about is who was obedient to whom? Because sometimes I think, you know, because of our egalitarian society and because there's so much mischief in the church these days that people have a tendency to kind of scorn obedience. But when we look at the gospel, who was obedient to whom? The creator was obedient to the creature, the Lord to the servant, the son of God to man. And in what was he obedient? Well, in everything. And for how long? Well, as long as he dwelt with Mary and Joseph, namely 30-some years. And why did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, why practice this obedience? Number one, that through his perfect obedience, he might make satisfaction for the disobedience of sinful man. And two, in order to give the greatest example of obedience to us all. And obedience is connected to the virtue of piety. Now, the example of Jesus, Jesus went to <clears throat> the feast at Jerusalem and remained for three days in the temple. And it shows us that we, you know, what we ought to be like in the house of God, to listen attentively to his word and the expounding of it in the homily, to focus on the prayers and to avoid distraction. And this is what we think of when you think of a pious person, somebody who goes to Mass and is very uh, devoted and very focused. But the virtue of piety flows from the fourth commandment, to honor thy father and thy mother. This, this, by the way, is the only commandment with a promise attached. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thou mayest be long-lived in the land which the Lord thy God will give to thee. That's Exodus twenty twenty one. Now, for us, the promised land, the fulfillment of the promised land is heaven, and our life there is eternal. And piety is the virtue by which we show respect and do reverence to our patrimony, to our fathers, our own fathers, the fathers of our country, most especially our fathers in faith. In other words, piety is reverence for tradition. And we'll talk more on piety and the awful consequences of the lack of it in just a bit. But first, um, what else we see in the gospel here would be uh, industry, right? Work. God gave Adam work to do in the garden before the fall. So work itself is not a punishment. The punishment is that work became difficult and unpleasant. But Jesus worked 
and thereby he made work holy. And he taught us to work willingly, each one of us at his own business, and not to be ashamed, never be ashamed of any kind of honest work. Industry is a virtue, and it comes under the capital virtue of zeal, and it is opposed to the deadly sin of sloth. As St. Paul said, he who does not work should not eat. Also, we see uh, growth in holiness. Jesus' hidden life at Nazareth teaches us that as we advance in years, we should likewise advance in wisdom and grace with God and men. And we will grow in business, uh, wisdom if we get to know God and his holy will better. And we do that by means of religious instructions and listening to sermons, spiritual reading, plenty of stuff on uh, social media and the various platforms, formed and uh, .org and so forth. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Lots of places to go to listen to, um, you know, spiritual topics. And we grow in grace or favor uh, with God by our good works. Beginning with, and I would say especially by prayer and the worthy reception of the Holy Sacraments. Grace or favor with men we gain by brotherly love and by friendliness and by unselfishness, by generosity. And then uh, we have also, we see zeal for God's glory. That's another of the virtues. Mary and Joseph went every year to the temple at Jerusalem. And Mary, you know, wasn't bound to do so, but she did because it was a work, work that was pleasing to God. And the example of uh, Mary and Joseph ought to teach us that to be obedient to the law of God is to be zealous for his glory, that God still imposes commands on us through his holy church. Uh, for example, the, the precepts of the church, you know, to, to hear Mass on Sundays and Holy Days and receive communion at least once a year and so on. The example of the Holy Family Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in the house of Nazareth um, is a model for the imitation of all families because in that home, love and peace reigned and all of the virtues extolled by St. Paul in the epistle that we read earlier. And then finally, the loss of Jesus. Now, Mary and Joseph uh, lost Jesus through no fault of their own, but consider with what sorrow they searched for him and with what joy they found him. We, on the other hand, tend to lose Jesus through our own fault when we separate ourselves from him by mortal sin. That's what it is to lose Jesus. And that is the worst of all misfortunes. That is the the greatest of calamities. Because if you lose Jesus, you lose everything. And we can never be truly happy without him. And so the person who has lost Jesus must therefore follow the example of Jesus, or Mary, rather, and Joseph, and seek him with sorrow. For us, this is not just the sorrow of loss, as it was for Mary and Joseph, but the, uh, the sorrow of true contrition. And only then will we find him again in the temple of his church, in his father's house. And when we reconcile ourselves to God by a good and contrite confession, he will take up residence again in the temple of our souls, through the indwelling presence of the Blessed Trinity that is the state of grace. This, by the way, was another of Our Lady of America's instructions to Sister Mary Ephraim, devotion to the indwelling presence of the most blessed Trinity. Okay, more on this and the virtue of piety and a danger of impiety when we come back right here on No Nonsense Catholic, the Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Logan, what has Virgin Most Powerful Radio done for you? Well, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, I got to say, I've been a listener for about a year now, and it's really helped me grow closer to my faith and the fact that I'm listening and I'm getting unsugarcoated, clear, charity with clarity, Catholicism. And it's really helped me even, you know, grow so much deeper in my faith as a young man and discern the priesthood and have a love for Jesus Christ. And this is so seen on the Terry and Jesse show on Virgin Most Powerful, the unsugarcoated, clear truth of our Catholic faith that is so lacking today. It's almost like the Terry and Jesse show. It's the orange juice Catholicism. It's filling things up. I just need to give my shout out, my praise. I'm just so appreciative. It just really helped me. And I know now people want to hear this. It inspires me to want to speak it. And it inspires me to even go as far as discerning the priesthood to think I should speak this. We need to stand up for our beautiful faith. This is the unsugarcoated beauty. And this is just what I've seen on the Terry and Jesse show. I encourage so many listeners to start donating and support this cause. It has just truly really impacted my life. And all I just want to give is some praise to it. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR and may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back. Still talking about the virtues of the Holy Family as exemplified in the uh, Feast of the Holy Family in the Extraordinary Forum that we celebrated last Sunday. <clears throat> talking about the loss of the child Jesus in the temple. Scripture says that Mary pondered on all these things. And so let's ponder this. Do you like going to the house of God? Have you ever missed Holy Mass through your own fault? And how do you behave in the church when you are there? Do you participate and pray, pay attention to the homily? In other words, do you assist at Mass with attention, reverence, and devotion? Because as adopted children of God, we should follow the example of Christ. But how can we follow him if we're not obedient to our superiors? Obedience is first and the first and most necessary virtue. You must obey those who stand to you in the place of God, in all things but sin, of course. And how well do I do that? How well do I obey, especially that which is, for me, unpleasant? You know, I need to say to myself, when I'm required to do something that's distasteful to me, I say, you know, ad maiorum dei gloriam, all for the greater glory of God. All for you, Jesus. Jesus, I do this for the love of thee. In the words of Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, the way the will becomes strong is by doing small things that you've made up your mind to do, however much you don't want to do them at the time. 
The thing is that obedience to earthly authority is related to obedience to God, because all authority comes from him. Scripture says Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. And compare that to um, what St. Paul writes in the letter to the Philippians. Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God has all power in heaven and on earth, and he gives a share of his power or authority, more properly speaking, to human beings. He gives parents authority over their children. He gives bishops authority over their dioceses. He gives rulers powers over their, their countries. And we owe obedience to earthly power because authority comes from God. And this is the fatal flaw in our own system of government. You know, um, put a bookmark there. I've often said that um, the Bible did not fall from heaven, all bound in leather with gilt edges and the words of Jesus printed in red. It came to us through certain men who, by divine inspiration, wrote what God wanted them to write and only what he wanted written. But it was the authority of the church who received these books that discerned which of the writings from apostolic times were divinely inspired and which were not. And Catholics need to recognize that, you know, the authority of Scripture and tradition and the magisterial authority of the church all come from God. Now, the U.S. Constitution likewise did not fall from heaven, but unlike Holy Scripture, it is not an inspired document. It's a document, uh, first and last, written by men and amended by men and interpreted by men who maintain that their authority does not come from God, but in their own words, from the people. Unfortunately, when this reality is taken to its logical conclusion, it's exemplified by the kind of events that we witnessed uh, in the year 2020. And this is just the beginning of the end. That's why Sam, Dr. Samuel Johnson, you know, back in the 18th century, back during the Enlightenment, he said that in republics, there is not a respect for authority, but a fear of power. Now, Jesus obeyed those in authority, as we should. Our Lord obeyed, first and foremost, as we should, his heavenly Father. You know, he said uh, in John six thirty eight, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And in John 14, he says, I love the Father, and I do as the Father has commanded me. You know, that's piety. Jesus obeyed his parents on earth. He obeyed Mary, uh, his mother, and Joseph, his foster father. He knew that his heavenly father had given them authority over him. And he obeyed his parents in all things. That's what's meant by the words, he was subject to them. That is piety. And Jesus obeyed earthly rulers. He knew from whence they held their authority, even if they did not. When Pontius Pilate, the, uh, the Roman governor of Palestine, asked him, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and that I have power to release you? And our Lord replied, you would have no authority over me at all if it were not given you from above. Jesus obeyed this authority even to death on the cross. That's the ultimate example of piety. You know, when I was doing a daily show and happy hour was uh, five days a week here on VMPR, I used to read from the Imitation of Christ every day. Because the key to holiness is to take Jesus as our model. And our Lord showed us the way of love and obedience. And to be good Catholics, we must follow Jesus. And he perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments given to man by God the Father. 
Therefore, we should follow Jesus through our obedience to them. We should imitate him in loving obedience to our parents and teachers when we're young and to our temporal and spiritual leaders uh, throughout life. Uh, we should, uh, all who have power from God over us, we should obey them in everything, of course, except sin. Because when we obey legitimate authority, whomever is exercising it, we're listening to the voice of our good shepherd, and we're showing how much we love him, especially when we obey in something that we don't feel like doing. That's how you keep from being blown about by every wind of doctrine. But the church, in the church, the virtue of piety is more than just obedience to, to magisterial authority. It is fundamentally the virtue of keeping our traditions. It is reverence, due reverence for our patrimony. And obviously we see the lack of piety in the world when people uh, tear down statues uh, or vilify the fathers of our country. But what do you call it when authorities in the church tear down beautiful altars and replace them with tables? Or remove the tabernacle from its place of honor in the sanctuary? Or make changes in the liturgy that are nowhere sanctioned in the tradition of the church? Not even in the documents of Vatican II. I mean, Sacrosanctum and Concilium didn't mandate any of this. It didn't even mandate getting rid of Latin. It, it allowed the vernacular, but, but quite the opposite from uh, mandating getting rid of Latin. It mandated that Latin be retained. But it was not. Does that not also smack of impiety? Intellectually speaking, I can't see how virtually all the changes in Catholic belief and practice since the Council, I, I don't understand how it can escape the label of impiety. And I'm not saying that the new Mass is you know, invalid or the, the new sacraments you know, or the modern popes are heretics or any of that. I'm simply pointing out that the impiety that we are witnessing in secular society, from the destruction of statues to the imposition of, of uh, the so-called inclusive language, like happened in the House uh, a week ago, those things happened first in the church. And as the church goes, so goes the world. And it is not the job of the church to keep up with the times. On the contrary, it is the duty of the church to reflect the timelessness of the eternal God and of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this has all been on my mind recently because uh, just the other day, Pope Francis changed just a word, just a single word of canon law. He replaced the term laymen with laity in Canon 230, which deals with the ministry of lector and acolyte. Now, the point of this change from laymen to laity was to allow women to be formally installed in the ministries of lector and acolyte. Now, a lector, as you know, uh, is, reads the, the, the readings at Mass, and an acolyte refers to an altar server, although the, the formal ministry of acolyte includes preparing the the altar and uh, serving the Mass, but also even um, distributing Holy Communion if there's a, a genuine need for it. And a good many conservative Catholics uh, are quite upset by this. It's like the change in the catechism on the death penalty or, or giving communion to the divorced and remarried that uh, was kind of sanctioned by Amoris Laetitia. But why are they upset about this? I mean, there are folks who are saying that it's a tempest in the teapot. Because after all, women and girls have been, you know, doing the readings at Mass and serving at the altar, or even serving as extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion for, for years. 
But the fact is, all of these things began as abuses. And the law was only changed later to accommodate the widespread disobedience of the use of, of women and girls in these, in these roles. Which is also a problem in that it creates a false impression of the democratization of the church. As if the popes and bishops are saying that their authority doesn't come from God. As if they're saying, well, if that's, all, if that's what the people want, you know, we're not going to punish them for the disobedience. We'll just change the rules. And that, it seems to me, is another example of impiety. But the point here is that this, this most recent change is different. It is unique. And to understand it, it's going to require a quick history lesson. Today, when a man's called to be a priest, he undergoes a seminary formation, and he is first ordained a transitional deacon and then ordained to the priesthood. But traditionally, in the centuries before the post-Vatican II liturgical reform, there were in the priesthood four minor orders and three major orders. A man was first ordained porter, then lector, then exorcist, then acolyte, before being ordained in the major orders of subdeacon, deacon, and finally priest. And you notice that they were ordained to cast out demons before they could serve at the altar. Now, after the reform, all of the minor orders and one of the major ones were suppressed. Today, the candidate for priesthood is not ordained, uh, but he is formally installed in the ministry of lector and acolyte before his ordination as transitional deacon, or now also the permanent diaconate. So in the new order, lector and acolyte are formal ministries that up till now were exclusive to men preparing for ordination. This formal installation is obviously different from lay lectors and, and altar servers who are merely participating in that ministry. Now, as we've already pointed out, <coughs> in most dioceses around the world, including at the Vatican, women and girls have been lectors and altar servers for decades. But that service is possible not as a formally instituted ministry, but under the terms of Canon 230, which allows now women or men to carry out the functions by temporary designation, and which will continue according to the Pope's instruction, but now only in the absence of a formally instituted, persons formally instituted for those roles, which means, of course, the handful of men preparing for ordination and a coming army of official women ministers. We'll talk about what that means when we come back. Right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No-Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. great man once said that evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. Well, you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose this war, and in so doing lose this great way of freedom of ours, history will report with the greatest astonishment that those that had the most to lose did the least to prevent it from happening. Well, I think it's high time now that we ask ourselves if we still even know the freedoms that were intended for us by our founding fathers. Every generation of Americans needs to know that freedom exists, not to do what you like, but having the right to do what you ought. You weren't made to fit in, my brothers and sisters. You are born to stand out. Set yourself apart from this corrupt generation. Be saints. 
God bless you. Jesus said in Luke 17, When you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have only done our duty. According to St. John of the Cross, God is pleased with the little deeds we do in secret. He takes more pleasure in these than in a multitude of grand works that we may do out of the desire to be seen by others. May God help us to do the things that please Him and not just to appear great in the eyes of others. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back. Uh, I hope you'll pardon me. I am, uh, I've got a lozenge in my mouth, so I hope it doesn't uh, affect my speech over much, but uh, keeping me from coughing, which is the important thing right now. Um, I wanted to mention also that we're coming up on our annual spiritual warfare conference. I believe, Richie, is that this Saturday? The spiritual warfare conference, is that this Saturday? Yes, okay. So for sure, I wanted to make sure that, that uh, I wasn't bum-steering you. Yes, uh, starting at 9 o'clock in the morning Pacific time until 3 in the afternoon, we're going to have Jesse Romero and Dr. Dan Schneider, and they're going to be talking about matters, spiritual warfare. So you're going to want to tune in for that. It's free on YouTube here on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio channel. And I th- believe that you can still go to vmpr.org and register ahead of time, because if you do... <coughs> Pardon me, if you register, and there's a, a small donation involved, about $35, I think, to help underwrite the cost of putting on the uh, the conference, but you will then get access to all of the recordings in perpetuity, right? So when that uh, conference is over, it's going to disappear from YouTube. But if you want to have access to the recordings, to be able to listen to it later, share it with your friends, whatever you want to do, uh, you're going to have to go ahead and register. And registering also is the only way that you can obtain the official uh, Spiritual Warfare 2021 t-shirt. So that's another thing that you're going to keep in mind. So I invite you to visit vmpr.org and read all about it and make sure that you uh, set aside some time on Saturday to watch live or register and watch anytime. Okay. We were talking before the break about this change in canon law that uh, Pope Francis has made allowing women into, uh, to be formally installed in the minister of lector and acolyte. And like I said, now, um, <clears throat> women have been lectors and serving at the altar for, for decades, right? But of course, lay people participating in that ministry is different from the formal installation of the ministry, which has exclusively been reserved up till now for men who are preparing for ordination, now, it doesn't make sense to me um, why to do this. I mean, the Holy Father 
made the change through an instruction to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and he wrote to the prefect, Cardinal Ladaria, he said, quote, The decision to confer also on women these offices, which involves stability, public recognition, and a mandate from the bishop, in other words, ministries reserved, reserved for those seeking ordination or for the ordained, typically, the decision to confer these uh, also on women these offices, quote, will make the participation in all the work of evangelization more effective in the church, unquote. And naturally, this is also going to necessitate changes in the right of installation for both of these ministries. So, so why the change? I, really, I mean, how exactly will allowing this oxymoronic official ministry for the non-ordained, how will that make participation of all in the work of evangelization more effective in the church? Why allow women to be formally installed in a ministry exclusive to men who are seeking ordination, especially when they can already exercise the function in many places uh, to the exclusion of men almost entirely. And most especially when Pope Francis goes out of his way to quote St. John Paul II regarding the impossibility of ordaining women as priests. Well, I think there's a clue in that specific designation of not ordaining women to the priesthood as opposed to simply not ordaining women. Frankly, it's difficult to escape the conclusion that this is a first step towards the ordination of women as deacons. Now, especially as Pope Francis is apparently appointing yet another commission to study that question of the ordination of women to the diaconate. But ordaining women, even if only as deacons, is not a part of our tradition. Just like the suppression of the minor orders in the first place, and you know whether women's ordination is the ultimate goal or not, This latest move emerges as yet another example of modern churchmen rejecting the tradition of our forefathers, which is the textbook definition of impiety. And if I'm correct, and I'm I'm certainly willing to be corrected, because I'm merely a lowly catechist, but if I am correct, I would point out that there's a punishment due for sins. And as often as our Lord had very harsh words for the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites and whited sepulchers and a brood of vipers, the only time he expressed his anger physically, the only time he turned over tables and braided a whip out of cords, was over liturgical abuse. Now, not to be outdone, I'd have to say the greatest uh, secular example of impiety today, well, ever, has to be the transgender movement. And I'm a father six times over. And it's not difficult for me to imagine the birth of a child. Think about it. Picture it in your mind. The mother holding the uh, little baby for the first time, looking into his tiny face. He has my mouth, she says. He has his father's eyes. And the new parents decide to call him John, let's say, after his grandfather, because they hope that he will take after him. And they look forward to the day when their boy will choose a saint's name uh, for himself when he becomes a soldier of Christ in confirmation. But then little John goes to school and learns that he doesn't have to be a boy if he doesn't feel like it. Maybe he feels more like a little girl. Maybe he'd rather be little Jane because after all it's his, her choice and there's nothing his, her, mommy and daddy can do to stop him, her. Now the people brainwashing little John Jane are not merely encouraging him, her, to refer to all his, her little friends by their chosen pronouns. They're actually encouraging him to deny reality 
and his own biological nature. Moreover, they're telling him to transgress the fourth commandment, to declare on his own authority that mommy and daddy were wrong to impose gender on him and to treat him like a boy. And it follows then that God was wrong, that God should never have made him a boy, that even as a little child, he knows better than God about his own nature, which is the same as saying that little John Jane is God. And who was it that sold that particular lie to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? And you realize that if I had laid out (laughs) this bizarre scenario as the coming new normal only a few years ago, you would have written me off as a lunatic. But now, viewing all of this from the bottom of the slippery slope, it makes you wonder if maybe... We should have kept the Latin after all. I think the church has a great responsibility to be a light in the world. And we need to, each of us, take, our, you know, take up our responsibility in our own lives while being obedient to the scriptures and the tradition and to the magisterium of the church. And that's, I think, is one of the reasons why the only sector of the church that's actually growing at this time is traditional Catholicism. Everywhere else, the numbers are still falling. The, the church is almost in, it seems like it's in free fall in some places. But the traditional movement's growing. And the reason it's growing, I believe, is because people yearn for piety. All right, that's one man's opinion. <laughs> Okay, um, you know, in our, in our final moments together, I just wanted to, to quickly hit the, um, re- just revisit St. John Paul II's no-nonsense plan for Catholics in the third millennium. As you might recall, I've talked about this before, I'll talk about it again, because I think it's really important. Because it's the first time in the history of history that a pope has outlined a point-by-point plan, a pastoral plan for the whole church. And it's unfortunate that this didn't get, I think, the attention that it deserved. This um, wonderful document, Novo Millennio Eneunte, as we enter the new millennium. And so he's got this seven steps uh, of his pastoral program. The first is holiness. Obviously, that's I'm sorry, apostolicum axiositatem, uh, Vatican II, right? The universal call to holiness. Uh, our Lord's call to holiness, it is, you know, the, the, the sine qua non of Catholicism. Number two, prayer as a conversation with God. Sorry, that's like uh, Bishop Sheen talking about prayer being a, uh, a dialogue that, um, you know, St. Catherine of Siena used to say that one of the reasons that uh, God is not working in the world the way he did in biblical times is that our prayer is not the prayer of Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, but more... Uh, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. And so we should follow St. Augustine, who says that we speak to God when we pray, and he answers us when we read the Holy Scriptures. All right. Um, Centering our lives on the Holy Eucharist. All the sacraments give grace, but in Holy Communion we receive Christ himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's why Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, called the Eucharist, Holy Mass, the source and summit of the Christian life. And also uh, why he says we should uh, practice 
Eucharistic adoration. Number four is frequent confession. Extremely important, a, a topic that I talk about all the time. Number five is to live by grace. All right. Um, and grace comes even before faith. You know, we are, we are moved uh, by grace to have faith in the first place. And so a sacramental life is, is the way to, to uh, live by grace, frequent communion and confession. Number six, meditation on Scripture and the Catechism. So Scripture and tradition. Billy Graham used to say, show me a man whose Bible is falling apart, and I'll show you a man whose life isn't. And um, I always say, show me a man whose catechism is falling apart, and I'll show you a man whose faith is not. Let's see. And then number seven, bring the light of the gospel to a dark world. That's the new evangelization. And what's new about it? What's new about the new evangelization is that we are to, uh, I think in the words of Scott Hahn, evangelize the baptized. You know, for, for so many generations, Catholic kids have been sacramentalized. They receive their first Holy Communion. They receive uh, confirmation, but they don't really practice their faith because they've been sacramentalized but not evangelized, and they need to have that personal relationship with our Lord Jesus. And so that's the, uh, that is the message for today. I'm so glad that you were able to spend this hour with me here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We'll be back next week. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic. And uh, I'll probably next week go to the question box. I've had a number of, uh, of uh, email exchanges lately, and I think you might be able to benefit from some of those questions and some of the answers. And don't be afraid to, uh, to address questions to vmpr.org. Go to the Contact Us, send your question, and uh, they will get back to you, and it might even get on the air. So in the meantime... Like I say, thank you for listening, and thank you especially uh, in this new year for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. All of those uh, who are donors or monthly donors or who are registering for the conferences can't do it without you, okay? That those needs are real and they are important and they are greatly appreciated uh, when you help us to meet those needs. So until next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family from everybody here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio.